So um, we've been through the first chapter and sort of halfway through this second chapter of Second Timothy, and we're in this place where Paul is telling Timothy uh, to be strong in grace. Um, you know, both the idea of you're in grace and be strong there, but also you know have an abundance of grace. Be strong about grace and how it works in your life and in the life of those that you're in, you know, ministering to, he, he makes that strong point uh, beginning at verse 3 about you know, enduring hardship as a good soldier. He then in 5 talks about being an athlete and competing according to the rules and then uh, makes the illustration of the farmer and needing to be the first to partake of the, uh, you know, the crops that they've planted and grown. Uh, he, he talks about, uh, you know, enduring, uh, that's, you know, uh, mentioned several times over the next few, uh, verses in verse 13, if we are faithless, he, meaning, you know, Jesus Christ obviously remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And then in verse 14, in light of all of these things, he, he covers some new ground, but he, he's staying sort of on the same subject. He says, Remind them of these things. So those that you've been teaching and the people that need to be corrected, remind them of these things. Now, that's significant uh, in light of uh, you know our modern church, the things that were going on at this time, very similar to what's going on in our own times in a lot of ways. Um, people uh, always want what's new. The discontentment of the human condition is such that, you know, because of our sinfulness, covetousness, and lust, we always want something new. Uh, you know, marketing understands this. They, they don't actually have to, you know, invent anything new and fantastic. They dress up something that's old and convince you that you're dissatisfied with what you currently have. And so then you're going to have the new thing that... that whole marketing scheme of just making people discontent. It's it's easy to do with sinful people because that is a tendency of the sinful heart is to desire, you know, what other people have, desire the next thing, to, to be discontent with where you're currently at. Uh, you know, I make the assessment that that is, uh, you know, as the musician's Noted years ago, you know, the God-shaped hole in our heart. We're, we're trying to fill it with uh, so many other things. And uh, so the discontentment compels us into something that perhaps we shouldn't be involved in. Within Christianity, there's a similar problem. That because the church doesn't find its contentment in Christ, in his word, in fellowship, in worship, and all of the things the Lord has provided us, for because the the church is largely non-spiritual it's it's largely of the flesh so so therefore the discontentment is inside christianity so the teachers that are you know trying to care for those uh you know who profess to be believers who are of that mindset they have to come up with something new They've got to come up with the new and the fantastic. You know, they've got to have the drama team, and they've got to have 
you know, not that drama teams bad or any of these things that I'm describing, but they, they, you know, they've got to always be on the cutting edge of whatever is fantastic. Paul is, you know, taking Timothy to a different place, saying, you know, remind them of the things they already know. Okay, uh, think about that for just a minute. How many times, you know, for those of us that have been in Christianity for a long time, um, you know, you hear something you heard years ago and you, and you, you know, whether you're going to admit it out loud or not, you think, goodness, I had forgotten that. <laughs> like, I, like I needed to be reminded of that. You know, I'm, you, you do the accurate measurement of yourself and you realize I have drifted away from that concept, that precept. So the constant need for reminder is a big part of what ministers do. I don't care if you're talking about nursery worker, Sunday school worker, youth worker, senior pastor, where you are in the food chain of feeding the body of Christ. There's a basic principle of the need of reminder. Consider a couple of passages that support this idea. Paul speaking to the church at uh, Philippi says, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And then he goes on to say, Beware of dogs, meaning unbelievers who will attack the church. Beware of evil workers that will be in the church. Beware of the mutilation that that was the Judaizers who were trying to drag Christ, newborn Christians of the time back into you know, the laws and the restrictions of Judaism. Today, we would say, you know, legalism, those that, that function according to legalism. So, you know, it's not tedious for me to repeat. It, it, it's good for you. Um, this is a similar thing that they accused the prophet of Isaiah of, uh, those that were the modern, you know, the churchgoers of his day that went to temple, went to synagogue, you know, heard his teachings, read his writings, and their assessment was he's simple. He's childish. He, he says the same things over and over again. You know, line upon line, precept upon precept. You know, here a little, there a little, meaning, you know, he, he's teaching these little repetitive things constantly. We read the writings of the prophet of Isaiah and understand the history of what went on at that time. We go, now there's one of the most powerful prophets that ever lived, you know, repetitive in nature. Why? Because we're forgetful as a people and in need of reminding. Second uh, Peter chapter one verse twelve. Peter himself said, "For this reason, I will not neglect to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth." I'm going to continuously be reminding you. It, it, it is. I was going to just say it was outright sinful, but I don't know if it's outright sinful. It is a telltale sign of our nature uh, as Christians. Uh, it's a telltale sign of our our sinful nature that we want the new, we want the fantastic, that we're thrilled with you know whatever presentation appeals to the flesh. Uh, the, the Word of God, and I don't mean to put this in a negative way, is not especially appealing to the flesh. You know, think about the nation of Israel. They've been receiving God's provision for all these years, and what's their complaint? All we have is this manna. 
it would be pretty nice to not have to go grocery shopping. You know what I'm saying? You just get up in the morning and your food is right there on the lawn. Um, you know, and, and their complaint is, oh, all we, all we have is God's constant provision. We get really fleshly. We get uh, really immature in a lot of senses. So that same statement, remind them of these things, charging them before God not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Oh, there it is again. One more time, an anti-social media verse in the Bible, right? I mean, that is the sort of thing that Facebook is made of, you know. Just the arguments, the striving about words to no profit. I'm astonished at the number of people who, you know, are in churches, claim to be Christians, in their argument online, you know, they're making the point of my pastor and this thing, and, and, and it all is a bunch of nonsense. I'm not talking about, as Paul is saying, reminding people of what the Word of God says and letting the Word of God just have its work. You know, I'm talking about people that find the strange, new, and fantastic who want to argue over the nuances of silliness that don't build people up and make them stronger as Christians. It's astonishing to me how much of that is out there. So continuing with that same thought, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Not, a, not men, right? Not human beings. Approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, it, it is about us being serious students of the scripture. He's going to dwell on this issue, you know, shunning profane and idle babblings and increase of ungodliness and all of these things we'll get to in a few moments. But there is a need for Christians to be serious about the word of God. Um, I had an occasion I've described before years ago working with a group of ministers, and as we were establishing a new a new ministry, <clears throat> the question came up: of Are we going to allow employees, uh, volunteers in this new ministry, to drink alcohol? And I was kind of like astonished that it was even a question. You know, we're we're ministering to children, and you know, trying to set an example for the community, and. You know, whether other people within Christianity do or not, you know, I would think we would just automatically set the standard of no. You know, we, we want uh, the people working within this ministry uh, to not be using alcohol. And, um, oh, the debate rages and we go round and round. And I'm, I'm not, okay, it's, you know, my position, our, our church's doctrinal position. Uh, okay, I get there are differences of opinion on the matter, but they finally say, so, you know, what do you think on the matter, Will? And I present, I think that there should be total abstinence. And I talk about Timothy and how, you know, Paul has to tell him to no longer drink only water, that it's okay for him to use uh, wine mixed with water in order to kill the bacteria. And, you know, in his uh, drinking water there where he was, at Ephesus in order that he he wouldn't have the stomach problems because he's drinking stagnant water and 
suffering, you know, Montezuma's revenge with the, uh, you know, bacteria that was then developing in his body. And Paul is saying, it's okay to use, you know, a little bit of alcohol in, you know, mixing it in with your water. Use, use a little bit of wine, mix it in with your water. He has to command him, stop drinking only water. In other words, here's a young minister who has it in his mind of, you know, total abstinence from alcohol and his, his pastor has to say, it's okay for you to use it in a strictly medicinal way. You know, and we pour through a number of things. So as I'm relaying this to them, you know, a, a couple of times, these fellow ministers said, where do you get that? And I'm like, well, you know, right here in, in the scripture. Uh, you know, oh, I've never read that before. You're a pastor who's teaching the word of God and you've never read you know, Proverbs 31 that that tells you that as a ruler who teaches the word of God that you shouldn't use alcohol because it'll cause you to forget God's word and pervert justice. You've never read that before? It's, it's necessary for us to remind people so that they will be people who study God's word and not be ashamed because they are incorrectly dividing God's word. Just cut certain verses right out. They don't know them. Rightly dividing, right, means that all of this goes over here and all of this part fits together with this. You've perhaps run into people who incorrectly divide God's word. Jehovah's Witnesses show up on your doorstep, right, and, and you get into the debate with them and you're going to come across where they say, Jesus is not God. And you say, no, I'm sure that he is. You know, I, I've read it many different times. I see lots of different passages that support it. And they'll take you often to Proverbs uh, chapter 8 and uh, try to insist that the scripture is saying that Jesus is not God. And, and uh, you know, those of you that have been here for any length of time know what I'm about to do. But uh, they jump right into Proverbs chapter 8 at verse 22 incorrectly dividing verse 22 from the rest of the passage they say the lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old i have been established from everlasting from the beginning before there was ever an earth when there were no depths i was brought forth when there were no fountains abounding with water before the mountains were settled before the hills i was brought forth and it goes on and they insist and they teach that this is jesus speaking that Jesus was brought forth, Jesus was created, and and they make a, a you know a very convincing, very zealous presentation. And if you're not skilled, you can be left thinking, "Goodness, I, I didn't realize that. I didn't see that." Well, you have to go back to the beginning of the chapter, Proverbs chapter eight, verse one says, "Does not wisdom cry out, and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top." Of the high hill beside the way where the paths are. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city. This whole chapter is a female personification of wisdom. And, and Solomon is making the appeal to young men of, you know, forgive me for putting it this way, but he's like, hey, young men, you like girls? <laughs> you know, the girl you really want to like is wisdom. You want to make her your most dear possession. You want to incorporate her into your life. You want to 
you know, develop a relationship with her. Wisdom. And he talks about how God created her and how God used, you know, wisdom to perform all of his creation. If you incorrectly divide that chapter at verse 22 and start assigning Jesus to it, you end up with a thing that in the end could create unthinkable shame in your life. Imagine going all the way through this life thinking, I am a servant of God, and then you stand in front of Jesus Christ and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Imagine how much shame that's going to create in that moment where you realize, I'm headed to hell. I'm not a servant of God. I never knew God. You, you divide the word of God incorrectly, and it will create shame in your life like you can't imagine. We want to be people who study the word of God intently. You know, I've many times in ministry had people come and show me things in the scripture, and I thought, wow, I've never seen that before, and I've had to study it to the end, uh, you know, the nth degree. And what I discover sometimes is that is in the scripture and I've never perceived it before. And now someone has helped me have a better understanding of God's word. Other times I've studied it to the nth degree and discovered this person doesn't know what they're talking about. They're trying to create something that doesn't hold water. So within this, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You've got to be diligent about that. You cannot approach the study of God's word in a half-hearted way. You know, what does that level of intensity look like for you? It might look very different than it looks for me. You might be more intense or less intense. But you need to have your own personal intensity, your own personal diligence of pursuing God's word and understanding it. Verse 16, in contrast, but shun profane and idle babblings. The, the first definition we get in the scripture of the term profane means anything that is outside the temple. So you have that sense of Everything that is holy, everything that is of God is inside the temple, concentrated on the temple, right? You might be outside the temple and come across a bull, you know, cow, ox, and think, well, you know, is this profane? Well, it could be used in the temple, okay? I'm really just going for the abstract here. Certain things, but then you come across other things that are sinful, could this be used in the temple? No. <laughs> There's no possible way this could have anything to do with the temple. So it's that idea of, you know, how close in proximity to the things of God is it? You know, avoid the things that are profane. The farther it is away from God, the worship of God, his temple, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the farther away it is from that mindset, avoid it. And the, in fact, the term he uses is shun, right? That bears the idea of do not recognize its existence. You know, if, if you've been shunned by, you know, some religious group, uh, they behave as though you don't exist. You know, in certain uh, religious organizations, if someone rejects that religious organization and I'm not going to have anything to do with this group anymore, 
they, they will actually have a funeral for that person as though they've died. If they run into them in public, they won't speak to them. Total excommunication is the idea. That's what the Lord is saying about profane things and idle babblings. Once again, we're back to social media and Facebook. I, I just cannot believe you know, the nonsense that goes on and the arguments and the idle babblings. Uh, you know, I get you know, the need to be involved in politics. I get the depravity that's involved in our country right now, but I watch as so many who profess to be Christians, uh, you know, get online and just rant and rave about things they cannot verify. There's no way. You know, it's it's total conjecture. It's just opinion and they're never going to be able to confirm it, right? I mean, if the planet survives a hundred years from now, you know, their great grandchildren, their great great grandchildren might watch a documentary about what actually went on in those circumstances. But right now, all the people that are engaged in the conspiracy, you're never going to know the truth. Why are we engaged in it? The root of it is pride. I know more than you do. I've studied more than you have. I've spent more time researching this subject than you have, and I'm the one who has the information on this thing. Listen, again, you cannot verify it. You will never verify it in your lifetime. So how about this? Especially as a child of God, especially as a professing Christian, especially as a believer, grab a hold of God's word. Right? These verses are coupled together. Be diligent to present yourself to prove to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. In contrast, but shun profane and idle babblings. Just throw them away. Concentrate on the word of God. Uh, people come to me all the time because uh, I'm making different presentations about things and online... A lot of these subjects get interwoven with scripture, which pulls Christians away. So I'll be talking about a given prophecy or a given circumstance, and they'll come up to me and be like, ah, so you're dialed in on the conspiracy I'm dialed in on, huh? Nope, I'm not. I I'm focusing on the word of God, and the conspiracy you're involved in has stolen for, from the word of God and incorporated it into their conspiracy theory. And because I touch on it, your perception is that I'm involved with that conspiracy. I'm not. The thing I want you to understand isn't a conspiracy. It's a known truth of God's word. And we need to be diligent about studying it that we can make our presentation to the world. You see, here's the problem. When the world listens to us and everything that's coming out of our mouth is conspiracy theory and that thing and, you know, the grass, you know, the man on the grassy knoll and just you got all this stuff coming out of your mouth. And then Jesus also, then they reject Jesus because the conspiracy is rejected. Reject the idle babbling. Reject the profane thing. Get rid of that out of your life. Concentrate on the word of God. Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more 
ungodliness in the environment we're in and in the individual who embraces it, right? The farther I dig into God's word, the more godly that, you know, we become in the process. We become more godly the more we're in God's word. You know, profane, something separated from God's temple. The more I'm pursuant of those things which have nothing to do with God's word and his worship, then I'm moving away, right? Because we're the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. I'm moving away from being the place where he dwells, which is going to produce ungodliness. My brand of ungodliness is different than your brand, right? You know, as you get more and more ungodly, you might become more and more obsessed with business and money and work and, you know, go down that road. I, I become more and more ungodly in my brand and, you know, it's going to be the things that the Lord delivered me from. It's going to be different for each one of us. If we're drawing near to God, then he's going to produce godliness in our lives. This increase of ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. The way that it's worded here, that the term cancer is, is translated a number of different ways. It bears the idea of a consuming disease. Uh, it, it, it's, it's truest form of disease as far as a direct transliteration would be like gangrene. Okay. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's the idea of um, like pasturing on the flesh, eating, consuming of the flesh. Their message is going to spread and digest and deteriorate and corrupt more and more and more. The more strictly I adhere to God's word, the Holy Spirit, worship, the church, the more I stay away from those other things, then the more purified. Think about that, right? I mean, what is sin? What is death? It's the corruption of the flesh. It's the rot of the flesh. It's the deterioration. And that's the very thing that's being said there. It will be like a disease. It will deteriorate the individual. It, you know, if any of us, you know, here in this study or watching online or watching this later is, is realizing, oh, you know, I hear what you're saying. That's kind of hitting me right in the soft spot. Embrace it. Don't be offended by it. Don't be ashamed of it. Just embrace it and go, you're right. I, I need to get away from this. I need to move toward Christ. I need to move toward the word of God. Right now, our culture is just boiling in this it's crazy the stuff that's going on he gets specific in 17 as he continues hymenius and philetus are of this sort he names them by name um there are a lot of people who um you know they they avoid the the names as they preach you guys know me i don't um you know don't buy joel olstein's books don't watch his videos, don't read, you know, uh, Stephen Ramirez, I still can't believe that you came to know the Lord through reading Joel Olstein's book. Uh, you know, we shouldn't look at it and go, okay, that's, that's cool. God spoke through a donkey, right? You know, ministered to Balaam. 
So uh, he can use anybody. Uh, those that are corrupt and corrupting the body of Christ need to be named by name. Uh, you know, here, Paul does it. In the modern church of the day, you know, Hymenius, Philetus are of this sort. You could just sort of go through the cable Christian channels and most of, most of what is there fits into this bracket. They, they are corrupt and they are destroyers of the faith and destroyers of the body of Christ who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. Now, this plays into a number of different things that are still taught to this day. Um, the resurrection is past. At this time, there was a teaching promoted by you know, Hymenius and uh, Philetus that uh, said that um, Jesus' resurrection was it, that you know, all other resurrections were going to be uh, spiritual. That, uh, you know, we shouldn't be looking for the actual resurrection from the dead. That, that it was, you know, a spiritual thing that was going to happen. And uh, there were a few different variations on the teaching of, you know, oh, it had already happened. Um, and, and God has spiritually resurrected all the people he's going to resurrect. Or, you know, there was another mindset that said, you know, everybody who dies gets resurrected spiritually, but not physically. Uh, you know, the scripture is very clear that resurrection is physical. You know, Paul so very specifically in Thessalonians talks about the dead in Christ rising first and we being caught up in the air uh, to be with them together with the Lord uh, for the remainder of eternity. Uh, he gives us very specific uh, outlines as to how this body will be used to construct the new body, that it's the seed by which the new body will be created. He may he runs the parallel about Jesus, you know, was laid in the ground as that seed and then resurrected and his new body was derived, you know, out of what was his old body. So it's a physical resurrection is what we're looking forward to, you know, try to overlay that onto things that are being taught in the church today you know how many times have we talked about the prophecies that the scripture lays out about jesus coming you know the gathering of the church in the rapture to him and and what do the false teachers say oh well that's just spiritual you know those aren't those things aren't literally going to happen or they will say oh those already took place everything you read in matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 already took place in 70 AD all of the you know book of revelation that that already transpired uh, when Titus Vavian came in and invaded Israel and sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD that's already taken place you know th those are things all in the past so any application that those passages would have today about you know tribulation and death and you know the beast the antichrist the mark of the beast and America you know the the monetary system the one world religion the one world political system that's all just spiritual those things aren't literally going to take place guess what they're literally going to take place they're going to be physical occurrences here on earth and we are fast approaching these things so there are still these teachers amongst us and around us like you know Hymenius and Philetus who are corrupting the church with their false teachings and we want to be very aware and avoid them uh, wherever we can so they've strayed from the truth concerning the resurrection 
and they say it's already in the past, and they overflow the faith, excuse overflow, overthrow the faith of some. Now, some people get agitated. Some people get disturbed. Other people get confused. Other people have their faith destroyed by these things. Um, you know, think about somebody who's young, coming into the faith. You know, some of us that have been in the faith for years who have wrestled and dealt with these sorts of things for a long time. You know, it comes up, it crops up in a new way. We go, ah, well, we've dealt with this before. We know what this is all about. And, and we begin the process of moving through it. You know, somebody who's young in the faith might get so confused and distraught by it that they say, you know what? That Christianity thing is a mess. I don't want anything to do with that. And, the, and they throw in the towel on trying uh, to walk in the faith. So we want to be very careful about uh, you know, how we deal with these things and how we directly address these things. Uh, verse 19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. Now, this is significant. So for all of this corruption he's talking about, the need to remind the body of Christ about the sure, steadfast things and how false teachings and false teachers corrupt and influence the body of Christ. He's saying there's something uh, that that is steadfast. It's immovable. It doesn't change. And that is this seal. What is this seal? The Lord knows those who are his. I mean, I know the verse continues, but that's the punchline. The Lord knows those that are his. Right? He knows that Hymenius and Philetus are not his. The Lord knows that, which means every one of us should have a fearful self-examination. Am I one who is God's? Do I belong to God? And the implication is, right, some think they are but are not. It, it is a very strong possibility the scholars make note of the way Paul words this, and they're fairly convinced that what he's referring to is the rebellion of Korah that took place in Numbers chapter 16. I'll read us uh, beginning at verse 28, uh, where Korah has you know, come from the, the family of Levi and been given a job within uh, you know, the body of believers and within the movement of the tabernacle and the, the disassembly and the reassembly and uh, you know, organizing the people, organizing worship and making sure that uh, you know, the worship of God goes on the way that it should. And now they want more. They, they want Aaron's job. They want Moses' job. They decide, oh, you know, it's time for new leadership. You know, we don't really like the way Moses does things. We don't really like the way Aaron does things. Uh, we think we can do it better. We think that we can do it differently. And, uh, you know, we can improve this situation. So, so that's literally their message. They meet with Moses and they say, you take too much upon yourself. And, and we think that we uh, can, you know, the, the family of Korah, we can hold this position now. You've had your turn, uh, you know, but everybody knows that there needs to be term limits. You know what I'm saying? On, you know, presidents and pastors. And so you need to step down and uh, we need to put somebody new in place is literally what they're saying. And Moses addresses them, 
number 16, beginning at verse 28. By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of my own will, right? Moses was out in a very simple job, seemingly just content with the simplicity of his life. <laughs> just tending sheep. Does not, you know, tried to rise to power, tried to be, you know, the big gun in Egypt and ended up literally killing an Egyptian and thought that, you know, the Israeli people were going to follow him as, you know, their Messiah and deliverer had this whole dream in his mind. And, uh, you know, next thing he knows, there's an arrest warrant out for him and he's fleeing town and hiding in the wilderness. And 40 years later, he's content that the arrest warrant has expired and he's just got a simple job. And God shows up in the burning bush and says, you're my servant, you're my mouthpiece, you're my deliverer, and you're going to go into Egypt and free my people. And there's a big discussion, you could even say an argument with God, where Moses says, I can't do it. I'm not even equipped to do it. And he says, you're going to do it. You're going to go in there. You're going to get your brother Aaron, and you're going to lead my people out into freedom. And so now that he's being obedient to God, Korah shows up and says, hey, time for you to step down. And Moses says, well, I didn't appoint myself to this job. So if you think I need to be removed from the job, you're going to have to take it up with my employer. God. Himself. That's literally what he's saying. Number 16, verse 29. If these men, Moses referring to Korah and everyone who's following him, if these men die naturally, like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit. That's literally hell. If the earth splits open all the way to hell, and they fall alive from the surface of the earth into hell, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Not Moses. They've rejected the Lord. I, if I'm Korah at that point, that's where I'm saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I repent, how do I you know, make this right? Instead, he continues in his rebellion, and the ground opens up and swallows him and all of his family and everyone who followed them and all of their possessions, gone from the surface of the earth. And there's a great repentance amongst the people. That seemingly is what... Paul is saying about himself and about Timothy and subsequently about anyone who is in fact put in place by God. The Lord knows those who are his. You know, people can come along and say, I don't like you as, you know, the deacon, the pastor, the nursery worker. I think I should be made, you know, that position and that role. Bottom line is, if you've been put there by someone else, <clears throat> it's not your responsibility to be there to remove yourself or put someone else in place. God is responsible for that. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 4 says, no man takes this honor of being a pastor, a leader to himself, but he who was called by God just as Aaron was. It's supposed to be that ministry 
is not a vocation, that it is a calling. Uh, so many who are in the ministry approach it as a job. You know, I, I went to this town or that town. I took the position. Uh, this is my pay. These are my benefits. This is my term. That's my retirement. This is my health care. They approach it as a vocation. It needs to be that those who serve, <clears throat> whether they have all of those provisions in place or not, that they're doing so because God has called them to that position. The argument with these people that are trying to undermine the church is that it's time for T Paul to go. It's time for Timothy to go. You know, there needs to be new leadership. There needs to be new understandings. There needs to be new teachings put in place. And Paul is clarifying, no. All of those things come from the Lord, and they are aligned with the Lord. Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So as the qualifying element of those who have been called, there is a purity of conduct. that the, They have left their sinfulness, that they have left a sinful way of life and that they no longer live that way. You know, it, it's a really unfortunate thing to see people who make all kinds of rules and regulations and, um, you know, great claims and then you discover, you know, later down the road that they were living like a total heathen. It's astonishing to see people... It's really weird to me to see people who make such bold positions against a particular brand of sin, and then you find out that they're engaged in that particular brand of sin. You know, here's somebody who's, you know, diametrically opposed to homosexuality, and they're just out, you know, railing and, you know, carrying on their campaigns, and then you find out that they're engaged in homosexuality themselves. You know the the level of hypocrisy is astonishing, and, and and this is what he's saying is that you shouldn't be able to find iniquity in the life of the person who's actually been called to be a minister. It, that's sort of a given, right? I, I mean, what is the one thing that uh, you know ungodly people always bring up about for you know their reason for rejecting Christianity? Hypocrisy. It was filled with hypocrites. I know I make the point all the time. There's hypocrites in every setting that you go into. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, if you just, you know, if you're bagging groceries you know, at the local grocery store, you know, you're surrounded by hypocrites in the workplace. You know, yeah, within the church, there are hypocrites also. Point is, it, it is, you know, starkly different. The consideration that if, if we're saying we're a minister, and we're walking with the Lord, and this is our lifestyle, it needs to be two things. One, you've been called by the Lord, and two, that has resulted in a change of nature and a change of behavior. Uh, all of those rules and regulations that people put in place and that Paul is mentioning specifically about these people that have all of these arguments and you know idle babblings, uh, they don't do anything to make you more holy. Um. You know, the more legalistic somebody is, the more convinced I am usually that they have hidden sin in their life. 
You know, whenever somebody, you know, has a mindset, I, I will never forget growing up. And the first time I, I experienced this as I was nine, nine years old, local minister that I had to deal with. Um, I, I was involved as a child in two separate areas uh, that of ministry that he ran and uh, unbelievably legalistic on, on every level. Christianity was a lot different at that time in the early 80s. Um, uh, two things stand out distinctly. One was uh, uh, I had a, a friend who his family was very poor, and we were both involved in attending that ministry. And um, this pastor uh, came up and put my friend on the spot using me as the example uh, uh you know i had the white wall haircut that was the standard in the handbook for that ministry that we were involved in my friend right we're both nine my friend comes from a very poor family hasn't had a haircut in months and he's going from him to me about my crisp clean appearance and his shabby appearance and how clearly I, well, I'm nine. And this guy's doing this thing about how clearly I'm a godly young man from a godly home. And clearly you are not. And you're from an ungodly home and back and forth. And I would, I mean, at nine years old, I, I was crying. Like I cannot believe this guy is doing this to us. In the end, he, he takes his finger and goes, right on the side of this kid's head right above his ear whack and holds his finger there and says your hair is supposed to be that far above your ear that profoundly impacted me as a child to say I don't want to ever be like this man it was shocking and disheartening to discover just a couple of months later that that man was engaged in an adulterous affair that destroyed his church and both of those ministries that I was experiencing at that time. You know, this high level of legalism that he's, you know, forcing upon everyone around it. Hear me, even when somebody has a very high moral standard themselves because of their relationship with God, usually what you discover is that it, you know, even though they have a personal, extremely high moral standard in life, if the, if it's because they have a real close relationship with God, like what Paul is saying, you know, saying here that the seal that is set upon them, that the Lord knows those that are His, then they're extremely gracious people. They're extremely kind people. They're very forgiving people. Very understanding people. They may have that extraordinarily high standard that they've set for themselves in their own relationship with the Lord, but God is incredibly merciful and gracious with them, right? And so because they have this deep relationship with God and it has resulted in this high moral standard that they live according to, then they have a tremendous graciousness and love for everyone that's around them because that's what they're experiencing from their Heavenly Father. The seal of God is upon them. 
the character of God, which has changed them. They're extending to other people. It's a thing that we should be able to recognize. Colossians chapter 2, it begins in verse 16, as Paul specifically talks about these people who follow all these rules and these regulations, and they say they've got special knowledge about angels, and they worship on this day, and they don't worship on that day, and they don't eat this food, and they do eat that food. Paul gets to the end of that passage in Colossians 2 at verse 23 and says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You know, here Paul again saying in verse 19, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If we're, we're going to preach this message, it needs to be that we first have absorbed this message, right? Think about what he said previously in the chapter about the soldier has to be obedient and endure whatever he's put to in order to be pleasing to the one who's commissioned. The athlete has to compete according to the rules. The farmer has to be the first to consume of the crop and the product that he has produced. The minister, the child of God, needs to be a person who is, number one, called by the Lord, not any man, and two, it results in a change of his behavior. Those are the earmarks of those that belong to the Lord. Continuing at verse 20, he says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, so if you're wondering, like, what, what, what cleansing are we talking about here? You could go through the chapter and discover a number of things, but specifically verse 19, the iniquity that we just spoke about, and then right here in verse 20, the dishonor that it produces, right? So uh, anyone who is, uh, you know, cleansing themselves from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor. Listen, the way Paul describes this, we don't, we don't get a good handle on it in our uh, setting. They, they made all kinds of vessels to be used for different things. And, um, you know, you could buy like nearly disposable, uh, you know, even clay items at the time. They, they would do nothing to put any treatment in them. Uh, they would do no glazing on the outside, you know, fashioned and molded very nicely, uh, you know, maybe even fired briefly just to dry the clay. And there you go. There's your clay item, you know, put flowers in it, <laughs> you know, to put on the windowsill. But you can't even put, uh, you know, you know, buy that for like a you know, couple pennies. You know, you can't even put water in it. It would dissolve the clay. You know, kids knock it over. It smashes. Just throw it out. You know, a vessel for dishonor, something that's totally disposable, totally temporary, mostly useless. 
Oh, you know, then there are those treasured items which have come down generation. Oh, this used to belong to my great great grandfather. It's made of solid gold. You know, he left it to my you know great grandfather, who gave it to my grandfather, who gave it to my father. Who, who, now look, I possess it. You know, it's a thing of tremendous value, both monetarily and emotionally. You know, it's it's been kept and held, and it's part of the family. Something of great honor and something of dishonor. He's saying in every great house, there's all kinds of vessels. What do you want to be, right? You want to be the thing that the Lord uses for a period of time to just stick something pretty in and uh, then check out the door, you know what I'm saying? Just going to have a party, buy a whole bunch of these temporary things and put them around the house and, you know, when you're done with them, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't like keep the cray paper decorations up, you know, year round. You know, you're going to have a birthday party for the kids. Boom, you know what I'm saying? Confetti explosion and uh, balloons and whatnot. But, you know, it's just attractive very temporarily. What do you want to be in the house of the Lord? Something that, okay, I'm in the house of the Lord. But temporary? Discarded? Dishonored? No thanks. And I don't want to go through all of this effort to just get to the place of being discarded. We want the permanency. We want the value, do we not? Do we, do we not want to be a, of precious intention for our Lord? How do you do that? Through the process of being cleansed. Cleanse himself from the latter. Iniquity and dishonor. He will be a vessel of honor. Sanctified, right? We've talked about it many times. There's the idea of being positionally sanctified meaning that christ has cleansed us from all of our sins and positionally we are sanctified in the lord but then there's the idea also of progressive maturity that takes place progressive cleaning that takes place you should not be in the same place you were you know the year that you met the lord a year later should there should be distinct changes Two years later, five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, right? If you're talking to somebody 20 years later who's the same as when they first came to Christ, there's something wrong. Needs to be growth, needs to be progress. So he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master. We can cause ourselves to be put into a place of disuse by not allowing ourselves to to be cleansed. It is in the cleansing and the sanctification that we become more and more useful, prepared for every good work. The preparation that occurs in us. Uh, my wife will often talk about how, you know, I surrendered my life to Christ. Lori just sort of followed me into Christianity. Then she had her own collision with Jesus, surrendered her life and really started to grow Young Christian, uh, Jeanette Graves, my pastor's wife, recognized the call of the Lord on Lori's life. And uh, she showed up at church one day and Jeanette said, you're teaching Sunday school. And Lori was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm like half a step you know, away from the world. How, can, how in the world? And she said, no, you, you have the call of the Lord in your life and you're going to serve. And this is how you're going to do it. And she just showed her the stuff and launched her into it. Yeah, and, and Lori will tell you that there was, you know, real struggles and real failures and, 
you know, a whole process that went on. But just, you know, I recognize the call of the Lord in your life. Now get to work. Prepared for every good work. Now in verse 22, he begins by saying, in along, along this lines, flee also youthful lusts. Notice he doesn't say, like, walk away. Notice he doesn't say, um, you know, don't dwell there long. Flee, and it is just like it sounds, run away. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Timothy's not young. He's 40 years old at this point, and he's hearing flee youthful lusts. It's the lusts that are youthful, not the man. David was 50 years old when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. It was a youthful lust. And our world is filled with youthful lusts. It is just everywhere, constantly being pushed upon us. No matter how old we are, we need to run away from them. Run away from them. Have nothing to do with them at all. I'm not even going to give you the long line of horrifying statistics, but I'll tell you this, that 50% of five-year-olds have their own cell phones, and they have accessed pornography themselves on it directly. 50% of five-year-olds have accessed pornography on their own cell phone. Know what's going on in your house. Do not kid yourself. Just had a conversation with parents that are arguing over the fact that, yeah, our teenage daughter does go down in the basement with her boyfriend alone in the dark and watch movies, but they keep the door open. Yeah, remember when you were a teenager and how well you behaved at 15 years old, 14 years old? Give me a break. That's incredibly irresponsible. We, as believers, need to flee and help our families flee from youthful lusts. And in contrast, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It isn't just a running away, right? And there's a lot of people who set up all of these different things. If I'm going to you know, have this filter and that block and this thing, and I'll make sure that I never, and it's all just running away and running away and running away and running away and running away. It has to be that you're running toward Christ simultaneously. The devil's going to pursue you. Run away from the devil all you want, right? He's incredibly powerful, incredibly quick. It was Peter that told us that the devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. You know, if there's a roaring lion in our environment, yes, I want to run away from the lion, but I also want to run toward the gun. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I want to run towards the thing that can kill the lion. I, I'm not just going to spend my time running away. I've got to run towards. Pursue righteousness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue peace in contrast to idle babblings, profane uh, conversations, you know, run away from those things and run towards the thing that creates peacefulness with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Join those people. Fasten yourself. Oh, I don't have to go to church. 
you know, I watch online. Are you interlocking yourself with other believers physically? That's what that means in Hebrews when it says, do not forsake the gathering together. The gathering together is the interlocking. Same way the Legos interlock and fasten together, right? You can stick two big Legos together, lock them right in together, take one, shake it really hard. They're going to stay together, right? They're fastened to one another. That's what Hebrews was saying about do not forsake the interlocking, the gathering together of the saints. You know, gather together with those who call the Lord of a pure heart. Supportive verse, you know it. James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Yeah, Same concept, right? Here, you want to be cleansed, you want to be sanctified, you want to be useful, you have to shun certain things, flee from certain things, and fasten yourself to other things and other people in order to be purified in the process. Verse 23 says, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. This is like the Facebook chapter right here, right? Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Oh, don't they, right? All the way to the point where you're banned from Facebook. Give me a break, man. We, we need to have more self-control as believers than this. Avoid these things. Run away from them. There's all kinds of arguments. It doesn't just happen, right? You might have seen it happen right here in the front of the church. I finished a sermon months ago, and a man came charging right from the back of the room, right up to the front, and, you know, first thing he says to me, not good morning, how are you? Glad to see you're back. First thing he says to me is, you're wrong. And I listened to him for a couple seconds and just said, not here to be taught by you. God sent me here to be the senior pastor to teach the people that are here. Walked out around him, went out front, met with everybody else, said hello, shook hands, you know, prayed with people. Avoid, right, the foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. I'm not going to stand here in front of the congregation and have an argument with somebody. Maybe I am wrong, but I'm going to step right out around that and go away. Christ doesn't want me to stand there. You know, as it turns out, I wasn't wrong. He, he's wrong and just wanted to come here and start an argument. Go argue with somebody else. There's plenty of people out there that'll do that for you. I'm not interested in it at all. Verse 24, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and here's the punchline in this little section, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So, so this statement of, you know, the, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel doesn't mean you're not going to have things you know, you're going to have to correct people. Why? People are wrong. Not everybody is right. So from time to time, you're going to have to say, hey, love you, totally respect you, but you are incorrect. And here's where the word of God shows you you're incorrect. So deal with it and just leave them to their own ends. It's a matter of staying away from the quarreling 
and the disputes and the foolish arguments. Just let them have that all by themselves, right? Chuck Smith, I can't think of a more gracious pastor. Before it was popular, I heard him say on an old recording <laughs> early on in the church of people that are like this, he said, you know, really, it's not that I don't want you to go away mad. It's that I want you to just go away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that became more and more popular over the years, but here he is in the late 70s saying that, you know, don't go away mad. Just go away. No need for us as children of God to argue. You're going to have to correct those who are in opposition, but you do it in humility. You make the statement, you make the position, and then you let them deal with it. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. God grant them repentance. And then a whole bunch of our Calvinistic brothers pile on right there and say, yeah, right, that's why certain people can't become Christians because God hasn't given them repentance. I've got one, two, three, four, five supportive verses right here. I want to give you one because we're out of time. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord wants everyone to repent. He's given everyone the opportunity to repent. You know, maybe we'll back up when we're together next week and talk about that a little more. But the heart of God is he wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to know him. So you can't take that out of context and say, oh, well, you know, that's why I just continue to sin. You know, lust and steal and, you know, punch people in the face. and <laughs> Because, you know, God hasn't granted me repentance yet. As soon as he gives it to me, I'll stop doing all this stuff. And that's the way some people act. God has given you repentance. you got to take it. you got to accept it. Today I lay before you blessings and curses. You choose. It's up to us. Close it out, verse 26. And that they, um, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. People that are off their rocker in sinfulness, you very often get frustrated with them and you want to sort of, you know, yell at them and make them stop being so sinful. And the bottom line is they're blind. They don't understand what they're doing, right? Hear what's being said again in verse 26 that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him they do, to do his will. You've been around people, right, that like their decisions are so crazy that everyone is just left going, like, what is wrong with them? Can you believe the decisions they're making with their life? It's, it doesn't make any sense, right? No, it doesn't make any sense. You know, they're being given opportunities to experience good things, and they're choosing all the terrible things. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we'll close with this. Even if our gospel is veiled, hidden behind a curtain, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, meaning Satan himself who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. It does require a lot of patience to minister to a sinful and dying world. 
We, we need to have patience with people and with circumstances. And they, they don't understand. Pray that God would give them understanding. Open their eyes. Open their hearts. Open their minds. So that the things we share with them from the scripture, the things we teach them from our faith, uh, might be understandable to them. Uh, it's a cruel thing to be angry at someone who's deaf because they can't hear you. It's a cruel thing to be angry with someone who's blind because they can't see what you're describing. It's a cruel thing to be angry with someone who doesn't speak your language. You know, have you, have you ever seen that where, you know, there's a foreigner in the circumstance and, you know, the American is just getting louder and louder and louder as though by yelling there, it's going to break through the language barrier, you know? This poor Russian, Yugoslavian, you know, one of these workers that comes here to be part of Acadia National Park who can't understand a blessed thing you're saying. So if I just yell in English, uh, our, our language as Christians, our way of living, our lives, the things we're trying to teach and draw people into, if they don't understand it, the first thing you've got to do is pray that God will help them not be blind not be deaf, you know, understand our language so that they could then respond to the message that's being given them. Patience, kindness, gentleness. you got to correct them, but it has to, like verse 25 says, it has to come from the position of humility. Make sense? Almost. Well, let's pray and we'll pick up with uh, chapter three next week. Father, I thank you for your love and your graciousness in our lives. And Lord, we do pray that you would minister to us all of these characteristics that we see Paul encouraging Timothy to have and incorporate in his life. Help us to do the same, that we would surrender ourselves to you and see your will done in our lives. Accomplish what you want to in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.